Hey, how you doing? This is Beta Hedgeman of Is He A Real One Radio, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. I just want to take the time to introduce our guest of this episode, Jim Warner Wallace. He is a retired homicide detective who b- became a believer largely because of his evaluation of the Gospels, using his skill set that he had to use professionally for many years as a homicide detective. He is the author of Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, Forensic Faith. He has children versions of his books, and he has a YouTube channel and podcast called Cold Case Christianity. Now, I want to qualify this because we spent a little bit of time discussing what exactly is the skill set of a homicide detective, of a forensic detective, and how we can apply it to the four gospels and why the only reasonable response is that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is an excellent, excellent discussion. I pray that it blesses you. I pray that if you take the time to listen, that it does help have some intellectual understanding. Although the Holy Spirit has prayerfully already ministered to your heart and wherever you are in your walk, I pray that this interview is informative. I pray that it blesses your heart. And I just pray that the Holy Ghost has his way. So listen, perfectly you will enjoy. And resurrection season is right around the corner. So it's just in time for us to talk about the resurrection and evidence that we have for the resurrection. So tune in to this episode of It's Here Ruin Radio with a special guest in Jim Warner Wallace. A-A-A man. Beta Hedgeman. I am your host, Beta Hedgeman of Is Here Ruin Radio, and I want to say hello and wave to you. If you are listening and watching on YouTube, if you are listening on iHeartRadio, we want to say hello and greet you. If you are listening on iTunes, TuneIn, Spotify, or any of the other platforms that we have available, we just want to say hello, greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and thank you very much for tuning in. Now, we have a very special guest We have a very special guest on this episode where we will be discussing the resurrection. We are filming this just in time for Easter or Resurrection Sunday, whatever title fancies you. But this is a season where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I thought, who better to interview around resurrection season than the great Jim Warner Wallace. Jim, can you say hello to the lovely people who are tuning in and introduce yourself to those who may not be as familiar with your great work? Well, I appreciate you having me. As you know, we've become friends because we're both doing the same work. And I think our mutual, we first met that thing through Frank Turek, mm-hmm. uh, who is, uh, you know, just also making the case uh, like, like we are. And this is a season, right? So uh, most people who ask me to come and speak during this time of year, it's because this was the journey that I went on as a detective when I was not a believer uh, to determine whether or not Christianity was true, right? This one essential claim ends up being the most essential claim, according to Paul. Paul says, yeah. hey, if this didn't happen, we, we misled you. We are, are we're liars. Uh, we're false teachers. And uh, you, you bought a lie. And, and so it turns out that this is the one claim. And I, you know, think about this, Pete. It's, it's actually the one claim for a couple of reasons, right? It's not just that, yeah, this is an essential claim, but, but this is what separates the the person of Jesus from any other founder of uh, you know a theistic system. So it, this is what separates him from Buddha, from Muhammad, from anyone really, from Krishna, from you name it, you name it, from Baha'u'llah. These are folks who uh, said they were speaking for God and saw themselves often as manifestations of God's spirit. 
Uh, but this is very different. This is not what Jesus saw himself as. This is not how Jesus presented himself. He spoke as though he was God. He made claims as though he had the power, authority of God to forgive sins. He accepted the worship of people who, you know, you wouldn't do unless you thought you were God, especially in a Jewish culture in the first century. And, and so then, then he demonstrated his deity with the miraculous ability to rise from the grave. So, wow. so that, I just knew if he rose from the grave, this was something that was worth my attention. And even as a guy who was not a believer then, I knew that was the most essential piece of evidence in the Christian worldview. Right. Even in your opening right there, you know, you said a lot of, you said a lot that I would like to unpack, but, but before we even get that far, you know, I would like to tell people, you know, a little, well, first of all, you know, he has a book about that covers a lot of the things that we're going to discuss called cold case Christianity. It's an excellent book. Uh, It's a book that really helped me when I was still in my skeptical uh, uh, point in skeptical period, you know, his book just made a lot of sense to me and the Holy Spirit used that to minister, you know, to my heart, you know, and bringing me to the faith. And Jim, Jim Wallace, you guys, he's very humble. So he's downplaying. He knows how big a role he's played in my life and in my ministry, you know, really in my Christian walk, let alone in my ministry, you know, so he's being humble in that sense. But you know, he, the Lord has used this man who we're about to interview greatly in my life, and I'm very grateful for him. You know, I'll certainly uh, uh, put all three of his books. Well, it's actually more than three. You have five if we... If we uh, uh, who would have guessed? I mean, I, I didn't think I would ever write a book. Um, and it was Sean McDowell, who you just right. were talking to recently, um, who was the one we were out one day training up high schoolers, taking them to UC Berkeley. And I was teaching them about the, the material that's in cold case, didn't have a book back then. And he said, you should write a book about this. And I thought, oh boy, now, you know, you know my wife pretty well. So she, she's, a, she's the person who encouraged me, well, take up Sean's offer. So I, I did take up the offer to write something. And he first started connecting me with the people who could maybe like look at it and say, is this worth any, any effort here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so ultimately that's how you and I, you know, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to partner with you. I kind of see myself as the old guy in the room now sometimes because <laughs> probably I'm not the oldest guy in apologetics, but um, I feel like there's a window of opportunity for each of us as we have a cultural voice. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like, you know, I, I can reach people maybe my age, but that is not generally the age group that really is under the most um, doubt and skepticism related to Christianity. Anyway, if you're, if you're not a Christian by my age, you know, there's a good chance you may never be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but your age is the demographic that I am far more interested in. So when you first started talking about doing the same work that I was doing, I'm like, oh, please, hmm. yeah, get in there fast because we need we need young guys and gals who will come in and, and, and carry this banner so that we don't all look like we're in our 60s. You know, right, I'm, right. I'm 58, but I mean, I feel like I'm getting close, right? Mm-hmm. So I was just grateful that you're willing to do this work. Um, and I think all of us who are uh, maybe a, a little bit older, uh, need to pour into young people, both in their ministry life, in their marriages, in your family. These are the kinds of things that are super, you're in a great church right now that is, um, you know, kind of giving you the ability to grow and giving you opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you're in a good place. So I'm just glad to be here to be able to talk about the resurrection with you. Amen. Amen. And last but not least, before we get started, I'll even mention uh, for those who are listening or watching, if you've seen God's Not Dead 2, you know, there was a court scene that had a couple of uh, different people. There was Lee Strobel who had a scene that remained in the movie. And then there was another gentleman, and this is Jim Warner Wallace, you know, where he talked about, 
you know, I, I think you mentioned some of the undesigned coincidence, yeah. undesigned coincidences, you know, when you spoke and some other things, you had about a five minute scene. It was really excellent. So with all that said, with that, with all that said, I'd like to get started and, and also specify that we are speaking to a, a man who, who is very well learned, you know, he, you know, he, he is a scholar, he is an author and all of that, you know, but he also was a non-believer until around the age of 35. So, you know, you just said your age, you know, you're 58 now. He was a non-believer until the age of 35. And Jim Wallace is also a retired homicide detective. So he examined the gospels in a way that he would also examine, you know, uh, certain statements. So can you examine that better than me? Or can you explain that better than me? I'm sorry. And just, uh, you know, let us know how the Holy Spirit used that to help bring you to Christ. Well, and Susan and I were just talking about this. My wife just talked today. We were talking about how sometimes your experience working trials, working criminal cases, gives you a certain insight that helps you Number one, not to get panicky about certain truths that occur in Christianity. For example, uh, we see a lot of Christians disagree about non-essential issues mm-hmm. uh, within um, the, the, the claims of, of the Gospels, let's say. And so I might read the Gospels and, and infer, oh, I think that this means X, that Jesus is saying it for this reason, and therefore what Jesus really meant was X. And some other person within Christendom will say, no, you're wrong about that, and we will divide denominationally sometimes over these non-essential issues. And, and, and I, that never bothered me. The division between believers never bothered me because in any courtroom I've worked in, uh, I will interview my jurors after a verdict is rendered. And although they will all agree that um, he was, they thought he was guilty, they rendered a guilty verdict. When you ask them about the evidences we presented during the trial, they will widely disagree about what they thought the evidence is actually. They'll often say, well, yeah, I, I didn't agree with you on that one. I thought that was not really essential to my, I thought it was this thing over here that convinced me he was guilty. And I think you're wrong about that other thing. They would tell us this, right? They mm-hmm. think we're wrong about this. So you can have broad disagreement amongst the jurors who all agree that they think he's guilty or they find him not guilty. So, so whatever it may be. So this is very common when you're looking at evidence and making decisions. So when I was first looking at the Gospels, I simply said, look, they appear to be accounts written in the past of people who want us to believe that this stuff actually happened. Mm-hmm. They're writing it as though they saw it often, or they spoke to somebody like Luke, who says right. he spoke to people who saw it. Well, okay. If that's the case, I can examine. These are my cases. I work cold cases. Those are just all unsolved murders. They're often 35 years old, 40 years old, 20 years old in that range. So, so I'm able to look at these accounts, these reports in which people have written something. They claim it's true. I have no access to those people now. They died years ago. So how do I know if this happened in my criminal case, in my court case? Well, the same way I took that same process and I applied it to the Gospels, knowing that I could never talk to the eyewitnesses because they're no longer available to me. Well, that's common in cold cases. So it's a similar skill set. And that's what I applied. And this is why, for me, I was never like caught up in people who will say, well, these things don't agree. These accounts don't agree. Okay. That's what I have in all my cases. I got accounts that are written 35 years ago. I cannot go back and re-interview these people. And they don't seem to agree on. And by the way, defense attorneys love this. And they will spend time nitpicking the disagreement. But the reality of it is this is very common in, in eyewitness accounts. I mean, the same two people can see something they know just occurred. But because they have a different set of experiences they're bringing to their eyewitness account and a different set of interests, 
they will sometimes see and make certain assumptions and presume certain things and focus on certain things and they'll appear to disagree as a result. But in the end, they're all reporting just different shadings of the same event. And so that's how I approach the Gospels and that's how I approach the resurrections. That, that account, you know, if you just, as a matter of fact, um, you know Brett Kunkel, right, Beta? Yes. He's the guy who has Maven Truth mm-hmm. in his ministry. Mm-hmm. He tells a story of when he was in college uh, that he was challenged by a, a professor who simply, his only challenge was to try to reconcile the passion accounts in the four Gospels. He said he didn't believe this was true. And he said, if you will simply read those accounts and see how much they disagree, you'll have the same skepticism that I have. And his challenge was just these differences that exist in the account related to the resurrection. Well, that never gave me pause. As a matter of fact, it gave me confidence to start an investigation because the level of variation I saw in the four accounts of the resurrection was pretty much the same level of variation you see in any eyewitness set of accounts. You, you, you will see the same level of variation. So that, for me as a detective, gives me the place to start. Not, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop me from investigating. No, that difference that I see is what I think, okay, this is credible. If all four or five accounts in an eyewitness account agree word for word, we're suspicious. Right. As a matter of fact, the only thing we ask for when we, when we are dispatched to a, a homicide scene is just have the officers on the scene separate the eyewitnesses so that when I get there, they're all telling me slightly different things. I don't want them to talk to each other before I get there to try to iron out those differences. No, I want the differences to remain. My job is to figure out how to make that puzzle back together again. So that's the approach I took to the resurrection. And as I took it, I realized that, wow, this is... Um, this is the, the approach we took, as you know, we call this abductive reasoning. That is what we do at every death scene to determine what kind of death it is. And that's what I do with the resurrection to determine what story, what set of evidence, what explanation is most reasonable given the evidence we can agree on. Now, I, I think one of the reasons you stand out in the study of apologetics, Jim, is because that approach is incredibly unique. Although there are multiple books that that support the resurrection historically, your approach of breaking it down as, okay, these are four different letters, four different books, okay, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that are giving an account is essentially four bios about Jesus, yeah. right? And they're writing these letters, these four different people writing four different letters that are giving an historical account on Jesus Christ. And they're going to say a lot of the same things and are also going to say some things that are different. For instance, if you and I were to both write a two-page essay on this exact interview about what happened before the camera started rolling, during it, and afterwards, and when it actually published, you know, we're going to say certain things, because certain things stood out to you. You know, I might point out the editing process. You're not going to say nothing about that, right? Like, and it's go- and someone may look at that if they read our essays, you know, a thousand years later and go, you know, or let me put it this way. They're not going to go, well, Jim didn't say anything about having to edit it and have to mess up a, or have to fix a blooper because Veda messed up at one point in the interview and he wanted to edit it out where you couldn't tell. You probably wouldn't say anything about it, you know, and, I'll, and I might focus on it because, you know, maybe it was important to me. Yeah. But I just use that as an, 
as an analogy to say that your approach to how you examine the gospels is incredibly unique. Well, okay, so I'll tell you something too about that. So, so if you look at um, how we reckon, what, what are these gospel accounts? Are they first century biographies that require us to see them through the lens of other first century biographies? Here's what I know. It appears, and if you read the church fathers on this, they would agree that these are accounts that are written by people who are chronicling something that either they saw or somebody they talked to saw. The claims are being made. It's not as though, because a lot of times you can write a biography 50 years later. That's very different, right? You can write a biography and never have been an eyewitness on the, the lots of biographies are written. I was just looking at the history of biographies of Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. This book I'm writing, I'm talking about, well, you know, how do we write these kinds of things? And I make an analogy to the different people who wrote about Elvis, some of whom knew him and were present during these things they're writing about. Family members, people who liked Elvis who were family members, people who didn't like Elvis who also knew him personally. And then there were people who, didn't know him at all, and they were writing about it 50 years after the, you know, now 30, whatever it is now it has been since uh, he died, 40 years, whatever it is. Okay, so uh, something very similar happens in, in any kind of writing about a, a figure of the past. What we have, though, are early accounts that I think are written early enough to have been by, written by the people who actually saw this, and the claims are that they are written by people who saw this. Right. The claims of the ancients who are saying, well, yeah, Peter was preaching in Rome, and Mark's account is from the preaching of Peter and Luke, who was with Paul personally as the great doctor. He was talking to the people who knew Paul, who were often the apostles and the eyewitnesses, and he is saying this as much in the first chapter of Luke. So I think this is how I had to evaluate them. I'm evaluating them on the basis that they, do they or don't they accurately record something written by somebody who was either present or was speaking to somebody who was present. That's my assumption up front. I think we've got good reason to believe that's the case. And that's why I focused on those things that would demonstrate for me, are they written early enough to mm. have been written by people? Because if you want to lie about the resurrection, here's how you do it. You wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead. Then you can say anything you want. So if this is a, a late document that is written outside the lifetime of people who could read it and know if it was true, uh-huh. Then, then I think you're you're done. It's, it's there's no point in even trying to evaluate it. It may contain some small truth, but it certainly is not anything like I'm used to dealing with, which is the accounts written by people who saw it. So wow. I needed to know if it was early. And second, I needed to know if it you know um, could be corroborated in some way. And I think part of the problem is we're living in a generation right now where like we're posting this interview on YouTube, uh-huh. where you're going to be able to see us interacting. And so I think our level of verification in 2020 is different than it probably was in 20. Right. 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 And we like, we're like, Hey, if you don't got a video. Right. Right. I don't believe it. (laughs) So, so it's very different. Right. But, but most of my cases are not that far removed. They're 35 years ago, but even 35 years ago, nobody had the glowing rectangle, which happens to be a high def uh, camera. Now I expect to see some, if this happens publicly, if you're telling me this thing happened in a crowd of 30 people last week on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, there ought to be some video. Mm-hmm. Somebody there had a camera. Somebody right, there. Somebody, had a right. I have a high expectation of what I would consider to be corroborative evidence. But 35 years ago, no one even had a Polaroid. They could, nobody could take a picture in real time. 
So, so now what am I looking for? Well, he, you said he touched that? Is his palm print there? That would be a piece of corroborative evidence, but boy, is it a, a small slice? Uh, yeah, because that palm print will not tell me anything about what I said or about what I was wearing. A video would do that for me, but on now back that 35 years ago, all I have is a palm print mm. or I have somebody who saw him leave and I have a footprint. And I, I, these are like small, like little snapshots. I call this, these are small, um, the, the kind of corroborative, is, I call it touch point. It's just a small little touch point. Well, that's what we're looking for in, in, in uh, cases of my, like, you know, cold cases. I, I tell you, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, we'll be looking for video in cold cases. That isn't the case for me. Right. So something similar has to happen when we're examining corroborative evidence for first century accounts, right? It's only going to be touch point. Yeah. It turns out that touch point evidence is considerable when you're assembling a cumulative case in front of a jury on my cold cases. And it, I think there are some similar touch point evidences in archaeology and in other, you know, internally evidence, internal evidence from the, the actual gospels. There are other kinds of touch point evidence we can use. So I was building the case. Number one, is it early? Is there some form of touch point uh, corroboration I can use? Three, uh, have they changed their story over time? That's pretty much a giveaway that you're lying. And four, uh, do they have some reason that I think would be you know, a reasonable reason to lie to me? Because, and it turns out all lies are motivated by only three things, financial greed, sexual lust, pursuit of power. If those things are in there, then I can see why you'd be lying about this. If those are absent, well, then I'm like, eh, that's harder to explain. Yeah. Sometimes if those are absent, you're just, like, just stuck with a, a fourth category, which is crazy. You're just crazy. Right? <laughs> crazy people right. don't need motive. But uh -huh. really, those are very rare in criminal trials. You know, the idea that you could be determined to be uh, criminally insane. I mean, that just never happens, especially when you demonstrate that you plan this thing for three months, the criminally insane do not plan things for three months. Okay. So, so I think that part of it is, is that that's a category that's so underrepresented. It's not, it's not, it's not real. It's not, it's not a factor usually. And it's eliminated as a factor because you might have one crazy person, but when you get whole, whole groups that are willing right. to die for claims, group crazy is harder to come by than just singly, uh, singularly crazy. Right. So I just don't, I don't see it as a result. That's, that's the approach I took. Uh, and I simply used abductive reasoning, which is the idea of looking at the evidences in the room, the evidences in the yellow tape, and asking yourself, well, what are the four or five or six ways you can explain the evidences that are inside the yellow tape? And then just walking through those four or five or six explanations and crossing off the ones that don't work. And that's what I do with the resurrection. I think there are actually seven ways to explain the evidence that I would have accepted as an atheist. And I just walked through each of those explanations until I got to the one that was left. And, and, and you know, we're actually going to, you know, I don't have you for, for very much longer, but we're going to try to walk through a little bit of that. Now, I know we're kind of laying the groundwork as far as, you know, your approach and the thought process, you know, but this is all necessary to help qualify some of the information and evidence that we're actually going to discuss in greater specificity in just, in just a few more moments. I have two more questions as it relates to kind of laying the groundwork though. Can you talk a little bit about A, the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, 
and also any presuppositional biases before we okay. get to the specifics uh, that I would like to ask you about. Yeah, no, no doubt. So, so two things we got to lay down first is what is the standard, right? So if it's, if you said, Hey, I, I have to have every question answered before I can render a verdict. Well, you're not going to get on any jury because I'm going to eliminate you before I can get you on a jury. Cause I cannot answer all, all the questions you're going to have. I've never been able to answer every possible question. If you're the kind of person who says, well, I have to have all my doubts removed, every possible doubt, every possible question answered, I'm just going to eliminate you. So we have to be honest about that. The standard is not beyond a possible doubt. It's too high. You'd never convict anybody. You'd never be certain of anything in your life. For everything you think you're certain, I can level a possible or imaginary doubt. That's actually a jury instruction that judges give jurors. Mm. For everything you think you know, I can level some possible or imaginary doubt. So we have to get the level uh, the standard of proof realistically is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a lower standard, but that's a reasonable standard because again, there's nothing you think, you know, you think you're watching this right now. This you could be hallucinating this whole, <laughs> there are people who think the entire universe is nothing more than a computer simulation. Right. That's possible. But is that reasonable? That's what we're looking at. Reasonable doubt. So that's the first thing. Number two is that you, you have to be sure you avoid a presuppositional bias. So if you walk into a crime scene, I describe this in the book, where you think, hey, you know, this is a woman killed in her bedroom. Where's her boyfriend? And she's got a boyfriend, but he's not here. Well, you know, boyfriends usually do this kind of thing. So it's, it's going to be a boyfriend. Let's find her boyfriend. That's the killer. If that's your bias, and it happens to be, I the case I'm describing, it was her neighbor who did it. Well, you could spend a lot of time goose chasing the boyfriend. When wow. in fact, that's because you have a bias. You thought, well, I've done 100 of these, and therefore it's, it's going to be the boyfriend. That could work for you, but if you won't let go of that bias, you will miss the real killer. Same thing is true here. Make sure your biases do not keep you, and we'll talk about it at the very end here, the bias of, pre, uh, of philosophical naturalism. Right. Let's just go through right now what I think, because I, I want to also respect your time, and I want to make sure we talk about some of these. Look, in the end, I said, like in a death scene, there's four ways to die, suicide, natural, accidental, homicide. I got to look at the death scene, make a list of all the evidence in the death scene and start crossing out the things that don't work. Couldn't be a suicide based on this. Couldn't be an accidental based on that. Couldn't be a natural based on this. Oh, I got to work it as a homicide. That's how we work every death scene. Same thing is true here. Uh, there were four things in this scene related to the resurrection that as an atheist, I would have said, okay, I agree with you. I would have said, yeah, I agree. I'm not a Jesus mither. I think that yeah. Jesus is a real person who lived. Right. And I think that he was uh, executed on a cross. That does not mean Christianity is true. Right. Um, I, you could say that Jesus was executed on the cross and was even buried. And some people will argue, well, no, they wouldn't have buried him. I think there's no reason to doubt that Joseph of Arimathea provided a, a tomb. That was not uncommon that somebody of stature could provide a tomb for somebody that they loved or respected. So the fact that he was buried in the tomb I think that is, you know, the best evidence we have from history on this issue is that he was buried in a tomb. Uh, this does not mean Christianity is true, though. Right. I mean, it's so lots of people were executed. There are people who are executed on crosses every day, uh, even now, as Christians, you know, are weekly are being executed on crosses. This does not mean Christianity is true. It's amazing the amount of persecution that's happening globally that most people don't even talk about when it comes to Christians. It does not make it true. Right. So, okay, fine. Uh, I think that you, you want to end this in the first century. You just provide the body of Jesus. They never provided the body of Jesus. In other words, it appears that the tomb is empty at some point. Okay, fine. This does not make Christianity true. I can explain the empty tomb any number of ways. Uh, I would have also said, number three, that uh, the disciples made a claim that they saw the risen Christ. So, 
That doesn't mean it's true. They can make a false claim or they could be mistaken. There could be lots of ways to explain their claims. And four, they were committed to this. They seem to be transformed by this. Many of them died for their claims. You had Sean on to talk about the kind of ranking of what we think is reasonable. One right. thing I told Sean when he was working on that project on the, uh, the fate of the apostles was that I see early indications in history that there were like Pliny the Younger who is trying to writing to Trajan, the emperor, and saying, hey, I got some of these guys who are Christians. These were not the eyewitnesses. This was the next generation of Christians who will, well, they'll, I can get them to, to start worshiping Roman gods. I can get them to deny Jesus based on the pressure I'm applying, okay? Right. So it's clear that they were trying to get people to recant their stories very early in history. We have no record of anyone recanting. And you would think that'd be one of the first things I would do is get one of these guys to recant. And I'd be writing about that. That would exist. We'd have those documents to show that these people recanted their story. We have an absence of any alternative, uh, any recanting story from any of those who claim to be eyewitnesses. And we have a, a, a variety of, of either reliable or less reliable accounts that demonstrate they were willing to die. And we certainly have good indications that believers were martyred Right. Or their beliefs. So all that being said, that could even be true. Yet Christianity is false. Yep. People could die for a lie. I think it's, it's gotta, gotta explain it. Right. But it could be explained. So I looked at those four things, those four minimal things. He lived and died on a cross, was buried. The tomb mm -hmm. is empty. These people said they saw him rise from the grave and they were willing to die for their claims. Nobody ever produced his body. Yeah, I would give you that because, you know, if you want to end it, produce the body or get somebody to recant. That would end this in the first century. It didn't end in the first century. So those things are obviously missing. Okay, but I can, that's, 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 that's all I would give you. I wouldn't give, you know, I, Gary Habermas is a friend of mine and he's got a list of all the minimal facts, right? I wouldn't give you all Great book, right. <laughs> and I've got it back here in my collection. And I would not have given you those as, as, a, as, a, as a skeptic. I would have given you those four. That's it. Now, with those four, though, we got to explain them. I think there are six ways to explain them. Here they are. They could be lying. Right. They could be hallucinating. Hey, hold on. I don't want to cut you off. I don't want to cut yeah. you off. I, I, I want to get to that in a second. I want to get to that in a second. So, so what Jim is saying is, you know, for, you know, for those who are listening and following, you know, we, we're highlighting four minimal facts as it relates to, as it relates to Jesus that the first one being that he lived he was crucified and he was buried the second being that the tomb was empty and no one has ever produced his body the third being that the disciples believed that they saw the risen, the risen Jesus we're not saying this is essentially saying that the disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus and the disciples lives were transformed by what they experienced and as Jim stated as Jim stated this has certainly been covered on our channel. You know, we recently had Sean McDowell on where we went into greater detail about all of this. And when, uh, sorry to cut you off, Jim, but when I cut Jim off a little bit, we were getting into the possible ex uh, explanations about these, right? So if one of them is that they were lying, so we know that the disciples' lives were transformed by it. They believed that they saw the risen Jesus. One way to explain that would be that they were lying. Since you already started on that, let, let's focus on why you think that the possibility of them lying isn't a reasonable explanation to, you know, to Paul, wipe this we, away. We can do a few of these. Not, some, some are better than others. Some are more prevalent in terms of the explanations that I would have offered as an atheist than others. So I don't think we have to go through all of them, but I think there are six 
kind of atheist explanation. And remember, abductive reasoning requires us to make two lists, a list of evidences, we've agreed on four, right. and a list of explanations. I think there are seven. And Would so you like what I'm doing is I'm, I'm just comparing the list of explanations to the list of evidences and trying to determine which of the explanations is most reasonable. All the explanations are possible, but we don't care about possible. Mm -hmm. We're after what's reasonable. So the first one is maybe they're just lying about it. Here's okay. my problem with them lying about it. I work conspiracies for a living and I know what it takes to pull off a successful conspiracy. All right. They have the lowest possible number of co-conspirators who hold the lie for the shortest amount of time, who have excellent communication between each other. So when they get jammed up, they can explain, you know, what they told the authorities because they're going to be asked. The first thing we do is separate people, right? When we ask to do these interviews, we separate people and we go into the weeds and we do not let them talk to each other to see what they told us. So we can tell right away if they're lying. And the, the, the fourth thing is you want to have the strongest possible familial relationship. You're not probably going to rat off your wife or your brother or your mom. And lastly, you want to have the lowest amount of pressure. If those five things are being met, it's easy to get away with a lie in a group okay. setting. Okay. Smallest number of people, shortest period of time, great communication between co-conspirators, family relationships you don't want to break, and a low amount of pressure to tell the truth. It just turns out that those five things are missing in the Christian conspiracy. There are way too many people. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians, this is a bold claim if it's not true. Hey, guys, there's 500 people who saw the risen Christ on the same day, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, who saw the risen Christ on the, on the same day, who are most of whom are still alive. You could talk to them. Right. Well, if that's not true, that's bold, okay? Right. That's pretty gutsy. The second thing is they are holding it for way too long. 60 years they held it before the last one is executed. That's just too long. Uh, and then third thing is they're under no way to communicate in the first century quickly to know, because this is what's happening. They're torturing one of you in India while they're telling you that everybody else has already told us the truth. Tell us the truth. They've already given it up. Did you know that Paul had already confessed this not being true? It's a lie. Mm. They're going to lie to you, but that's what they do. Sure. That's what we all do, right? We're trying to get you, and you can't call to see what it is the other people are saying. You can't Snapchat them in the first century, right? So now you've got no way to know what Matthew is saying in North Africa, what John is saying in Ephesus, what Paul is saying in Rome. There's the problem. No way to communicate. Fourth. You've got really only a, you got, you have some, some brothers like Andrew and Peter or their brothers, John and James, their brothers. But Matthew, for example, who writes one of the earliest gospels, that dude's not related to anybody. And he's not part of that group of buddies that were hanging out with John the Baptist who came to Jesus as a group. He's not part of that group. He's a tax collector. If you're looking for the one account that is written from the perspective of the skeptic who ends up becoming a believer because of what he saw, not because he was told by John, you should believe this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He points them to Jesus. That is not Matthew. Matthew is the guy on the outside looking in. But after three years of looking in, he's now on the inside writing about it. But he comes as a skeptic. He comes as the Jewish tax collector named Levi, whose name is then changed because of what he saw Jesus do and who he saw Jesus to be. So I think that's interesting. And the last thing is, are they under any pressure? Well, you already know they're under pressure because right. all of these folks were under pressure in the Roman Empire to bend their knee to the Roman gods. Mm -hmm. they refused to do so and paid for that refusal with their life. So I think that's, to me, why I just, I, is it possible they're lying? Of course, anything's possible. If you ask me, is it possible? I'm always going to say yes. 
but it's not reasonable. And I had to move to the second explanation because I don't think that explanation works. All right. Now, w- when we talk about the possibility of, of them lying, of this just being lies, they're lying and you're mentioning reasons why, you know, you don't believe that's reasonable. You know, one of the reasons that it was over such a long period of time and they never recanted. And like you said, they didn't have text messages. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have these ways to stay in touch with each other to say the same story. Over and over. And mind you, the four Gospels are written in different areas originally, right? And then it's spreading in its own way. You know, yes, it's already scripture, but you got to understand that the, the, I guess the natural part of it is that it was once written and then it had to be shared. And this, they're they're in different areas of the globe at this point. Think about it this way. All lies are driven by a motive to lie. Uh Uh-huh. And if I can't find the motive to lie, it's a lot harder to argue it's a lie. So the motives to lie are always the same. We know what they are. They're the same motives to to kill, to steal, to do anything you shouldn't do is illegal or anything you shouldn't do morally, forget about legal. Any bad behavior that's ever been committed by anybody is only committed for three reasons, financial greed, sexual lust, pursuit of power. There is no fourth category for bad behavior. It's all going to be wrapped up in those three categories. I know that from working these cases. Mm. And I'll tell you that I'm looking for motive. So they're not getting like, you know, rich off this deal. And they're not getting a bunch of girlfriends out of this deal. But p- skeptics will sometimes say, well, it's got to be the third category, the pursuit of power. So they, they become somebody. I said, I saw the risen Christ. Now I'm in a special status. And that gives them a certain amount of power and authority. But that doesn't really work in terms of the Christians because number one, that power and authority cost them their lives. But number two, we've got a great example. Most of scripture in the New Testament is written by Paul. And if you're saying Paul is driven by the pursuit of power, Paul started with that power as a religious Jew. He already had that power. He was in that group. You're telling me he's going to jump out of the, the, the group that's actually more powerful and jump in with the minor group, the Christians, and mm. then he get his butt kicked all over the planet for 30 years, right? You read about his writings. We know what happened to Paul ultimately. That's one of the people we can have the most certainty about what happened. Right, right. That's true. Yeah, so what is he getting out of this, right? I mean, if you were a a, a Christian leader in the first century, you you basically had a bullseye. You had a price to pay for that. And he already had everything we think you're thinking. If he's lying, he's lying for power. This is what someone like Bart Ehrman probably would claim. But he had the power before he started all of this. It makes no sense. To me, this is not, is it possible? Yes, I always say it's possible. It's just not reasonable. And that's the problem with this. And that's why, by the way, you've got a bunch of other skeptics who have developed other theories, including Bar Ehrman, who doesn't take the theory that they're lying. He takes a different theory. And when you see people offer multiple theories to explain this, it's because they know that none of these theories actually work. So you present an alternative. That's a good point. I see, for example, hallucination theory as one of the alternatives. Maybe they just imagined this because they wanted it so desperately. And a lot of the accounts are solo accounts, like with Mary in the garden. And there's an account where Peter apparently has an individual meeting with Jesus or where James has. But the problem you have is you have group accounts or the vast majority of these accounts are group accounts. And then you're arguing for group hallucinations. And I think this is very difficult to maintain. And by the way, if you wanted to, to say these are all just hallucinations, there's a way to, to fact check this. Somebody just has to run back to the tomb because if these are all hallucinations, there will be a body in the tomb. But if there's no body in the tomb, well, now we got a conspiracy again because somebody had to remove the body. And 
I just, it starts to fall apart pretty quickly. But the reason why there is a, a, you know, kind of a, a theory about lies or a theory about hallucinations is because both camps know the, they don't think the other one works. And they're right. Neither one of those work. So I think that's why, for me, I have to move off of theories, especially group hallucination theories, because what you have in the, uh, the accounts in Scripture are not individuals who reportedly see Paul and really I mean, see Jesus and really want him to be alive because they're so distraught, and therefore they imagine seeing the risen Christ. This is not true for Paul. Yeah, he's the only one who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, but Paul does not want Jesus to be alive. That's not driving him. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite for Paul. That's a really weird account. Then you start to have group accounts like the like the women at the tomb and the, the guys on the road to Emmaus and, and the fishermen at the sea. They see Jesus in a group of seven. And then you have the upper room account with no Judas and no Thomas, but you got 10 guys there. And then Thomas comes back and now you got 11. Then you got groups of disciples on the ascension, groups of disciples on the mountaintop. These are group accounts. And I think this is much harder. 500, Paul says, who saw the risen Christ on the same day. That, to me, dispels this idea that this is a hallucination. They're too varied. There are too many people. And you could easily debunk this by just getting the body in the, out of the tomb. But there is no body in the tomb. And that's another factor you've got to consider. And so that's why I think to me, like there's people, for example, one of the explanations for this, as you know, is that maybe he just didn't die. Maybe he just was so badly beaten that he looked like he was dead and he just resuscitates rather than resurrects. That's a theory that people have held. Right. I think that's one of the ones that's easiest to dispel, though, because I think that part of the problem with that is that in 2020, we think that death looks like whatever you watched on TV last night or at the movies, right? (laughs) An actor who's just laying still long enough to look like he's unconscious. But if you've been around death and and had to do it for a living, if you're a doctor or a coroner or a a detective or a police officer or a first responder, fireman, paramedic, that kind of thing, you've seen dead people. You know what dead people look look that way. You you know right away that that dude's dead. I can be 10 feet away. I can tell you that guy before I get up on him. Uh, even if he's just on an overdose or something that's not like obvious death, right? Because death looks different because your heart stops beating and that mortis triad begins to take place, right? You start to number one, cool down because your heart's not pumping that blood. Two, you start to stiffen. That's called algor mortis and rigor mortis. And then the third mortis is the one that's the real giveaway, which is when I get there and roll you off your back, your back's going to be discolored because the blood is now being drawn by gravity rather than pushed by your heart. And if you're dying on a cross, you're going to see your feet are going to swell and they're going to discolor because the blood is just going to be captured by your feet and you're going to see swelling in your feet. And by the way, although we, I talk about this to audiences and Veda, I'm telling you people are like, Oh, never thought of that. But in the first century, there were no mortuaries to call. There were no coroners to call. First century average folks like you and me, we buried our own. Mm. We were midwifing our own births. We were, we were, we were, we, we had a better, more, a more uh, robust experience from birth to death than people do in the convenient 21st century. So right. I think part of it is you're asking, do you think they would have missed these obvious signs of death? There's actually a passage in scripture. It's in the gospel of John where, where one of the guards pierces Jesus' side with a spear and water is seen to come out of his chest cavity, separated right. from blood. Well, that's something we call, you know, that's called pleural effusion. When right. you see after cardiac arrest, this collection of water in your lung, 
Right. And this is a sure sign of death. And it was mysterious even to the first Christians who read that. They weren't sure of the science. They they actually, most of the church fathers who write about this, Tertullian and Origen, right. write about John's gospel. They get to that part and they're like, mm, that's probably not, that's, that can't be water. It's got to be an allusion to water or it's got to be a metaphor or a symbol of something. Because they didn't understand what plural effusion was. But this is clearly a sign that he's dead on that cross. The idea that right. he's dead and that they missed it. To me, is it possible? Sure. It's, anything's possible. It's just not reasonable. I mean, I'm not going to bet my life on possibilities. I'm going to be right. careful about reasonable and you know, what's, what's reasonable. So I just had to move off of that. And so as I went through this list, did they just hallucinate it? Did, did they lie about it? Did maybe one person hallucinate it? And they were so influential, they could convince the others. Did, did, was he not really dead? You know, did an imposter sit in? That's that's another theory that I, a lot of Muslim, for my people I know who are Muslim will, will often say this: that either somebody stood in for Jesus on the cross or represented Jesus after the cross. And, and the problem you're going to have is you've got to deny something about what is being seen by eyewitnesses. Yeah, Look, we have another miracle that occurs after the resurrection that I think might have been enough for any reasonable person to deduce or to infer that Jesus is, is divine because it's called the ascension of Jesus. Mm. And so how do we, are we going to deny that occurred? I mean, that's to me, that's like a lesser miracle in people's minds, but it appears whoever is portraying Jesus afterwards, he's a really good, good magician because he's <laughs> able to ascend. The, the problem is that be both before and after the, the crucifixion, you have a, a clearly supernatural man who's right. able to do supernatural things. And after the, the resurrection, he's still doing those supernatural things. The problem I have is whoever's standing in, he, he's able to do, he's able to, he's able to do both. And I think if you had no resurrection at all, but you had the teaching of Jesus and then you had him ascend into heaven, never be seen again on planet earth. That might be enough for me. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to jump. I want to jump in here. So, uh, f first of all, do you have a hard out at seven thirty? Uh, I do. Okay. All right. So, uh, I want to jump in here real quick and yeah. and say, okay. So we so we went through why it's not reasonable to say that they were lying. You know, you moved on to the possibility of okay, were they delusional? You know, uh, were they delusional? But people don't have group hallucinations. We went over why that doesn't work. Maybe they were fooled. You know, maybe they thought he died, but he really didn't. Right. Uh, maybe he rose, uh, but he also rose from the dead. You know, and showed his scars, but. Yeah. But maybe it was someone impersonating Jesus. So maybe Jesus actually died, but somebody who who looks like him and knew a lot about him was trying to fool the people who walked with him. That's unreasonable to say. You know, you also touched on you also touched on, you know, maybe they were influenced by somebody, right. you know, uh, maybe they were influenced by someone who wanted them to keep up, you know, a lie. But that goes back to the to the point of them of I'm sorry. That goes back to them arguably lying. And we already talked about why that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and look, but all these explanations for me had deal killers in them. Right. And this is why this, but this is look that idea that it's a, it's, it's a hallucination on the part of an influential one person who's influential. Yeah. Why is that? A, that's a new theory. That's a very, that's relatively new theory that Bart Ehrman has leveled and he had to change one of his foundational positions prior he always believed there was an empty tomb. In every theory he, he advanced prior to this, he advanced with that empty tomb as one of the data points. 
But when he thought about this, he realized, well, wait a minute, if it is one person who imagines something and then communicates it to others and his influence helps them to think of it this way too, well, then it could still be debunked by the body miss, you know, in the tomb. If there's a body in the tomb, then we all know you're just hallucinating. So right. he's now arguing that there is no tomb because he knows his theory does not work if the empty tomb is a data point. Here's my point though on all of this. That's, from a very, that's a very recent theory. And the reason why someone is positing another theory is because they inherently know the first five don't work. I knew that too. Those five do not work. There's like five ways you can do this as an atheist. You can cut it all the way you try to cut it. They don't work. And that's why we have six atheist explanations because mm. other, if you hold one of those, you think the other five are wrong. Mm. For good reason. I think the other five are wrong too, but there's a, there's a seventh way to explain it. And that is that the, the, the gospel authors just wrote about it. What was true. Right. They wrote about it, and it happened the way they wrote it. He rose from the grave. Now that also has a, uh, a problem. I saw it as an atheist. I'm like, look, keep in mind that all my criminal trials are, have strengths and weaknesses. And I know the weaknesses of, I have got, I have had cases where we convicted a guy and I knew every weakness in our case afterwards, the guy confessed to doing the crime. So I know we had the right guy, but I knew before we got the conviction, man, if they see this thing over here, the way that they're trying to portray it, we're not going to convict this guy because that's mm. a weakness in our case. And I knew we had a weakness in the case. Luckily, they didn't see it that way, and we convicted him, and then he confessed to it, so we are all good, okay? But I will tell you that I, I know there's every case has weaknesses. Even the best case you can make has strengths and weaknesses. There's a right. weakness to the Christian explanation. Here's the weakness. The weakness is that it requires something supernatural. It My requires goodness. a resurrection. And as for me, as an atheist, that was the deal killer. I don't care what how weak these other explanations I'm offering might be to you, but your explanation as a Christian requires something supernatural, which I deny miracles. So I'm a philosophical naturalist. I'm committed to a, a view of the world in which there are no such things as miracles. So this is going to disqualify your explanation as a Christian. But at the same time, as an atheist, I held a view of the universe in which I believe that all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing. Yeah. Now, space, time, and matter is typically what we think of as nature. And I believe that it came into existence from nothing. That means the first cause of that space, time, and matter has to be non-spatial, non-temporal, non-material. I already had to step outside of how we define nature mm -hmm. to explain nature. So if that cause that's outside of nature is capable of creating the entire universe, why am I so hesitant to believe it might step inside of its creation? Wow. Wow. Right. You know, you and I can stop gravity. We can interrupt the laws of nature as finite beings. Why could this being not interrupt the laws of nature that it is actually, why could it not step into the creation that it get created? So I had to open up my mind at least to what I saw as a weakness in the other explanation. It's the only weakness. The only weakness in this explanation is that it requires something supernatural. And it turns out the only thing that was keeping me from walking past that explanation right. was that I had a, a bias against the suit. In other words, I held a presuppositional bias. The very thing we talked about, you can't hold. Right. I held one of those and that kept me from seeing the Christian explanation for what it really was, which was a reasonable explanation given that I had a good reason already to believe there was something outside of nature to start with. Yeah. It caused all of, of space, time and matter.
Yeah, and, and you know, and Jim, we're wrapping up here, you know, in just a few seconds, but I, I really love that point. I kind of want to highlight the last thing that you said. So, again, we talked about some minimal facts that we'll, that we would accept, right? You know, and we, we talk about minimal facts that we would accept that Jesus lived, was crucified, and was buried, that the tomb was empty, and no one ever produced his body. The disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus, and the disciples lived lives that were transformed by their experience. And we're talking about all of these different possibilities, and we're trying to determine what is more reasonable to determine those facts that we know. That's right. Were they lying? We know that's not reasonable. Okay. Were they wrong? That's not reasonable. Were they delusional? People don't have group hallucinations. Were they fooled? Were they influenced? Were they distorted? And then there's another possibility that they were accurate. And remember, when we were laying the foundation for a good 20 minutes before we even got to these specifics, one of the things that we talked about were presuppositional biases. Right. Just like you shouldn't have a presuppositional bias. If there's a murder and you're a and you're a detective, okay, well, I know that the boyfriend did this. That is going to distort your your evaluating of the evidence that's available to you. If you are examining the gospels, if you're examining the word of God and you're looking at it and you go, These miracle these miracles don't happen. The resurrect people don't rise from the dead. No way that happened. You're gonna have a presuppositional bias to that possibility. The thing is, all of the other possibilities, it goes, well, that doesn't work for this reason. As far as them being accurate and they just report reported what they actually saw and what is actually true, that he did rise from the dead, that he did ascend to heaven. The only thing, the only thing that's standing in the way is me having a presuppositional bias that that simply doesn't happen. But guess what? If Jesus is God, he can do that. And I think that the Bible (laughs) demonstrates that he is. Is there any uh, last comments that you would like to say, clarify, highlight? Yeah, there's probably people out there, you know, we've both been in that position. We both came to this later in life where we were starting to look at, we had skeptical doubts. Um, So we both know what that feels like. And there's probably people out there right now who have the same kind of skeptical doubts. And here we are in a, in a culture right now where we're, we're all locked down. We're doing this remotely, right? This coronavirus, half people are working at home. This is a year that's going to be different than most years in that regard. And it's the one time in which your worldview can make a difference in how you see your experience. Well, it turns out we are offering something that's more important than the evidence for Christianity. We're offering the gospel of Christianity, the gospel that says that, yes, there's a, a if you knew for example, I, I'm not, I should have no fears about the coronavirus, right? Given the fact that if I'm watching Star Wars and I'm watching the second episode of the original trilogy of Star Wars and Luke's just had his hand chopped off and, and Han Solo is in carbonite, frozen in carbonite, right? whatever that, that, that whole process was. And you're wondering, these two guys, are they going to make it? Well, then if, you, if, if we're watching it now in 2020, I can see on the third poster for the third movie that they're still alive. <laughs> right. Like, I'm not like watching these movies going, oh, I wonder if we're going to make it because I already know what the second and third movie have in them, okay? Same thing happens here. I, That's we, good. I'm not concerned about what's going to happen to us because I know from my Christian worldview that we are eternal creatures that have been created by a God who wants us to be unified to him mm. in heaven forever that's what's going to happen we're going to get there sooner or later but we all have this chance to get there and what it requires is us to realize you can't work your way if there is a god that's powerful enough to create everything from nothing he has the power to eliminate moral imperfection this god is morally perfect 
That's what we're trying to be in union with. Not a good God, because I can be good on some days. My God. Perfect God. And I can never be perfect. Come on, man. So let's talk about this. We have to make sure that we understand that in a day like today, in a situation we're facing today, that we can actually adopt the perfection of Jesus and be united with God. But it would mean first we have to admit that we are not perfect and that we have to change who we are. It's called repentance. But really what it means is to change your mind. It's a renewal of the mind that tells us that we are not God and there is a perfect God. And we will never be uh, uh, practically perfect, but we could be positionally perfect if we adopt the perfection of Jesus. requires us to take him on as Savior. We have to say, hey, I want Jesus to be my Savior so I can stand before a perfect God because I will never be practically perfect, but I could be positionally perfect. Uh, He'll see Jesus when he looks at me. I get to cash in on Jesus' ticket. That requires us to, number one, no, we're not perfect. Be willing to change. Be willing to repent. Be willing to accept Christ as Savior. All of this stuff we're doing, you know this, Veda. This does not matter as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not All even close. I hope we're doing is we're laying the foundation so that people can see the gospel as reasonable. Mm. That's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we don't go alone. We want to go and we want to say, look who we brought with us. <laughs> That's Amen. what we're trying to do with all of this stuff that we call apologetics. Amen. Well, I'm certainly going to let you go, man. I'm so grateful for your time, Jim Warner Wallace. And what better way, what, what better way to end a presentation and a conversation like this with just a soliloquy that's sharing the gospel like you just did. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you, Thank you so much, Jesus Christ. The Lord is so good. And as we always end, we always like to ask, is he a real one? Yes, he is. And the he that we're talking about is Jesus, y'all. A-A-A, man. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm grateful for you. Thanks, brother.